Disclaimer. In this chapter, I will be discussing the murder of multiple young girls and women. This chapter may be triggering for some listeners, and this will be the only warning, so please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Welcome back to part two, everyone. Um, Where we left off, we talked about one of Ted's youngest victims, Lynette Culver. Um, Now we're going to get into a few more of his crimes and his eventual downfall. Bundy had already murdered multiple women by the time his now infamous VW Beetle was pulled over by a policeman on the 16th of August, 1975, for acting suspiciously in a residential area in the early hours of the morning. In Ted's car, the officer found a crowbar, handcuffs, a ski mask, and pantyhose with eye holes cut in it. At first, it was assumed that these were used for burglary, but investigators soon linked Bundy to an attempted kidnapping that had occurred almost a year earlier. That was the Carol Durant case. So with Ted now in police custody, investigators asked Carol if she could pick him out of a lineup, and she did. Authorities believe they had enough evidence to charge Ted with her kidnapping, and Bundy went on trial in Utah for that on the 23rd of February, 1976. He was charged with aggravated kidnapping, and despite being calm and very confident, he was found guilty and sentenced to a 1-15 to year sentence in Utah State Prison on June 30th, 1976. Colorado investigators decided that they had enough evidence to have him tried for the murder of Karen Campbell, and they filed charges against him on the 22nd of October 1976, which led to his extradition to Colorado in April of 77. He was then transferred from Utah to Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, where he would await his trial for that murder. Ted, who was, remember, a former law student, chose to represent himself in court, and the judge presiding over the trial decided to excuse Bundy from wearing handcuffs and leg shackles and had allowed him the opportunity to visit the courthouse law library so that he could research his case. On June 7, 1977, while taking a break from court during a preliminary hearing, uh, Ted spotted an open window in the library and decided to act. He would later describe the moment during a phone call with a prison psychologist saying, the guard went outside for a smoke, the windows are open, and the fresh air is blowing through, and the sky was blue, I just said, I'm ready to go, and walked to the window and jumped out. Honest to God, I just got sick and tired of being locked up. Jumping some 30 feet, Ted hit the ground hard and sprained his ankle. With absolutely no plan, no backup, and no money, Ted shed a layer of clothing and then limped his way towards nearby Aspen Mountain. Ten minutes after his escape, authorities caught on and began setting up roadblocks across town and placed all citizens on high alert. Bundy hiked up the mountain and broke into a hunting cabin, stealing supplies and a rifle, and headed off again. Ted ended up wandering around the forest for days after becoming lost and disoriented. He finally trekked down the mountain and returned to Aspen in the hopes of stealing a car. 
being sleep-deprived and in pain from his ankle when Bendy did manage to steal a car, he drove it so erratically that it quickly caught the attention of police officers who pulled him over. So Ted was back in custody after six days on the run. Although his taste of freedom was short-lived, uh, we know it wasn't his last. So Ted was stripped of all of his previous privileges and was now back at Garfield County Jail. He wasted little time, though, in planning his next escape. Realizing that his last attempt failed through lack of planning, he began stashing away money. He acquired about $500 cash over the next six months, most of which was smuggled in by his girlfriend at the time, Carol Ann Boone. Ted also managed to secure the floor plan of the jail and a hacksaw from fellow inmates. In his cell was an unsecured grate in the ceiling. Ted planned on cutting a hole around it and squeezing through the tiny one-foot square gap before making his way along the crawl spaces above to one of the jailer's rooms. To fit into the tiny hole that he was going to cut into the ceiling, he knew he needed to lose weight. By December 30th, Ted had lost close to 35 pounds and was ready to put his plan into action. With most of the prison staff on Christmas break, Ted piled books onto his bed and covered them up with blankets to make it look like he was sleeping underneath. He proceeded to make his way up through the grate and crawled toward the nearby jailer's room. Once above, he broke through the ceiling and dropped down. The jailer was out for the evening, so Bundy grabbed some of his clothes from the closet and got changed and then walked out the front door. And he was free. Again. It would take over 17 hours before anyone realized that he was missing, and by that time, Ted had managed to steal a car, catch a flight, and jump on a bus and make his way to Chicago, so, uh, like 1,100 miles away. Nine days later, Ted made his way to Tallahassee, Florida, and although the FBI had added him to their 10 most wanted fugitives list, he would remain a free man until mid-February of 1978. He was free for a month and a half. On January 15, 1978, Bundy entered the FSU, the Florida State University's Chi Omega sorority house, through a rear door with a faulty lock. Ted bludgeoned Margaret Bowman, who was 21 years old, with a piece of oak firewood as she slept, then garroted her with a nylon stocking. He then attacked Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler. Both of these women thankfully survived and testified later at his trial. Bundy then entered the room of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious, strangled her, tore one of her nipples off, and bit deeply into her left buttock. He sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. After killing Lisa and Margaret and attacking Karen and Kathy at the sorority house, Bundy attacked Cheryl Thomas a couple of blocks away. She also survived. And then, on February 9, 1978, Ted Bundy traveled to Lake City, Florida, and abducted 12-year-old Kimberly Leach from the grounds of her Lake City Junior High School. Ted raped and murdered Kimberly. Her body was found under a small pig shed in Suwannee River State Park in Florida. On February 15, 1978, Pensacola police officer David Lee saw a suspicious vehicle pulling out of an alleyway behind Oscar's restaurant. Lee knew most of the employees at Oscar's and did not recognize the orange Volkswagen Beetle as belonging to any of them. Also, it was around 1 a.m. which led Lee to question the motorist's motives even further. Um, after Lee ran the license plate of the car, it came back stolen. 
The fugitive behind the wheel was Ted Bundy. So Lee made a traffic stop on the stolen vehicle and a scuffle ensued. Lee said that he was knocked to the ground and kicked in the face by the driver. Then, after a foot pursuit, Lee was able to apprehend the suspect by firing two warning shots into the air. After the suspect was arrested, he identified himself as Kenneth Meisner. Police became suspicious when they found 21 credit cards in the names of 12 different Tallahassee residents. Recalling the month-old search for a man who attacked the co-eds, Detectives notified Leon County Sheriff Ken Katsaris. It was not long before detectives learned that the suspect was not who he said he was. The real Kenneth Meisner was a track star at FSU whose student identification was stolen a month prior. Now the police had their man, but they had no name, and Ted refused to give them his real name until 40 hours after his arrest. The newspapers referred to him as Mr. X for those first few days. After he was properly identified, Ted was sent back to Tallahassee. So let's talk about Ted's Florida trials. What do we have here, Ken? Let's see. Oh, it's an indictment, all right. Why don't you read it to me? Mr. You're on for election, aren't you? Mr. Bonnie got it, didn't you? Mr. Bonnie told me that you told him that you were going to get me. He said he was going to get me, okay? You've got the indictment. It's all you're going to get. Let's read it. Let's go. Choir. And true presentment make in and for the county of Leon upon their oaths do present that Theodore Robert Bundy. My chance to talk to the press. Contrary to section 78204 Florida statute. I'll plead not guilty right now. And your grand jurors being present in said court further gives the court to be informed and understand that Theodore Robert Bundy on the 15th day of January in Leon County, Florida. We've, we've displayed the prisoner now. I think it's another I think that. Uh, well, listen, I've been kept in isolation for six months. I've been kept away from the press. I've been buried by you. You've been talking for six months. I think it's my turn now. Okay. All right? We got a court order that you, there won't be any press interviews. Sure there won't be any press interviews. You've given them out. I'm, I'm gagged. You're not. I'll be heard. That clip has struck me for years, but even more so now. He, that cockiness there... Like, go on and watch the actual YouTube clip. He reminds me so much of Brian Kohlberger and just the arrogance there. One of the first things that we heard that um, Brian had said to his lawyer back in uh, Pennsylvania was that he was eager to be exonerated. And that just, that resonated with me because I had heard and seen this clip of Ted's Florida indictment so many times. It's just, we didn't hear it come out of Brian's mouth like we did with Ted, but it's still very, very similar. So the double murder trial in the Chi Omega attacks and murders and the attack two blocks away that same night took place in Miami. There was a change of venue. The trial was the first trial ever televised in U.S. history. Yet again, Ted represented himself often referring to himself in the third person as Mr. Bundy. Crazy. He looked calm, confident, and nonchalant most of the times. Having had a couple of years of law school under his belt, Ted was very careful in his responses, at times flipping them around in just a maddening way. For example, like when the prosecutor would ask, do you recall your testimony in Utah? Ted would respond, I recall testifying in Utah, just small little twists to his um, answers 
that leaves reasonable um, doubt or just playing word games with the prosecutor. So having already rejected a plea deal that would have spared him the death penalty, Ted was represented by a court-appointed defense team, um, and he didn't like this. Ted was constantly at odds with his lawyers throughout the entire legal proceeding. Ted actually agreed to the deal at first, but when his defense team was in court and ready to proceed with making the deal, uh, Ted stood up and tore up the deal, literally tore the deal up and claimed his defense team was basically trying to sabotage his case. Quote, he has a defect in his reasoning process that prevents him from making a decision. Um, that was the assistant public defender, Michael Minerva. Um, he wrote that in a memorandum addressing Ted's competency prior to trial. Quote, he lacks the mental stability to decide on a course of action, unquote. Obviously, Ted fired him in May of 1979. On the first day of jury selection, Ted complained to the judge, who was Edward D. Cowart, about the conditions of his punishment cell at the Dade County Jail. So after touring the cell with the prosecutor, Dan McKeever, Judge Cowart agreed with some of Ted's complaints and ordered that a jailhouse conference room be made available so that Bundy could review his law books and in preparation for his defense. The defense team that was composed of assistant public defenders Edward Harvey, Margaret Good, and Lynn Thompson, and also a volunteer private attorney, uh, Robert Haggard, elicited the services of Dr. Emil Spillman, an Atlanta-based hypnotist, to help seat a jury. After days of whittling down scores of potential jurors, some of whom had reservations about the death penalty, concerns of being sequestered for several weeks, or admitted they had a prejudicial opinion of Ted from all the pretrial publicity, actually a prospective juror noted during the questioning phase of the jury selection that one would have to be in Siberia to avoid the publicity of that case. Attorneys for both sides settled on a 12-person jury and three alternates by June 30th, 1979. The jury was made up of seven men and five women, and they would be the people who would hear the evidence at trial. Once the trial began, the defense team was constantly thwarted by Ted's seemingly rogue actions. From the beginning, Ted sabotaged the entire defense's efforts out of spite, distrust, and just grandiose delusion, like he thought he was better than them. So Polly Nelson actually wrote a book called Defending the Devil, My Story as Ted Bundy's Last Lawyer. She represented Bundy from 1986 until his execution in 1989. And she said in her book, quote, Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him apparently was that he be in charge. Bundy sometimes insisted on questioning witnesses, raising objections, or disturbing the defense team. In a bizarre courtroom spectacle, Ted went against the advice of his legal counsel when he cross-examined a police officer and called himself to the witness stand to testify and referenced himself in third person. Bizarre. Absolutely insanity. The judge actually cautioned Ted during the trial saying, a lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client, but that didn't seem to bother Ted at all. Ted received a stern lecture from Judge Cowart one day after he stuffed toilet paper into the lock of his cell 
so that he wouldn't have to appear in court. After conferring with his attorneys from his cell, Ted eventually did appear before Judge Coward, who held him in contempt and gave him shit when he pointed his finger at the judge. The judge actually said, don't shake your finger at me, young man. Bundy continued arguing his case, but this time he was pointing to the ground and to his own lawyers, and the judge turned around and said, that's fine, you can shake it at Mr. Haggart, and the whole courtroom started laughing. So there were some light moments, but I mean, what a buffoon. Prosecutors called 49 witnesses to testify during the trial, and the defense attorneys called just 15. The testimony of one of the survivors proved to be very damaging for Ted, as did the dental evidence that linked him to one of the attacks. The prosecution had two forensic odontologists, Richard Suveron and Lowell Levine, showed a photograph of bite marks left on Lisa Levy's behind next to an imprint model of Ted's teeth, and it was an exact match. This coupled with a witness from the sorority house who testified that she saw Ted enter the house that night, as well as an eyewitness who saw him leaving, helped the jury come to a guilty verdict after less than seven hours of deliberation. So like I said, on July 30th, 1979, the jury deliberated for less than seven hours before returning verdicts of guilty on all counts. The following day, the jury deliberated on whether Ted deserved the death penalty for the crimes, and once they reached their decision, Judge Cowart allowed the defense to make a statement before he handed down his sentence. During this time, Ted spoke for about 30 minutes about his poor representation, about the media's involvement in the case. Um, this actually, this whole sentencing clip It goes on for over an hour with just Ted's statement and the judge's sentence. I'm going to play just a mixed clip of that whole thing. I'll I'll play Ted's speech first and then and then we'll get into what the judge had to say. But that's only a short term effect if it exists at all. The long term effect of cameras in the courtroom can only be detrimental to me and only detrimental to the system. If we sat in here, as we often did between 9 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock at night and have seven hours of court proceedings, the news media people will take their seven hours of tape and reduce it down to five minutes. And it becomes incomprehensible that out-of-context piece of tape makes the whole process unintelligible, incomprehensible, and, and sensational. And I think that hurts the system. I think that makes the court makes me, makes my attorneys look kind of weird sometimes, saying things and acting in ways that, that, that don't seem to comport with a lot of people's belief that this is supposed to be a, a serious and stern proceeding. Oh. I like to talk about the court for a minute. Never like everything a judge does. I never have. I say I like some judges less than others. And I think that when a job's well done, it should be it should be praised. And I think this court has made a number of rulings and, and labored, as the court has said, labored in a way in, in, in certain things. And court should receive it had received my appreciation for that. It's a hard job. On the other hand, and there is another hand. I don't think I think the court erred. And that's my opinion. And that's a different side of the coin. 
but the error is human. And that's why we have appellate courts. And so, on balance, you know, I feel it shouldn't be left unsaid. The court had a, a tough job. I, I know I've seen a lot of different faces from the, from the bench. I've seen concern, I've seen humor, I've seen anger, a short temper, I've seen great tolerance for something. Uh, the whole breadth of emotion. And I guess that kind of indicates to me that your honor's uh, robe notwithstanding, you're, you are human. And I think that's the thing that stands out in my mind most in the, in the months that we've uh, been in this trial. But I'm telling the court, I'm telling those, those people who are close to the victims in this case, I'm not the one responsible for the acts to kind of make a house or Dunwoody Street. I'll tell the court that I'm really not able to accept the verdict because although the verdict found in part that those crimes had been committed, had been committed they erred in finding who committed them. And as a consequence, I cannot accept the sentence even though one will be imposed and even though I recognize the legitimate, the lawful way in which the court will impose it. Because it is not a sentence of me, it is a sentence of someone else who's not standing here today. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and receive the pain for that act, but I will not share the burden for the guilt. That's all I have. So immediately after Ted's dialogue, the judge delivered his sentence. I want to play clips, like I said, of the judge's findings, but not the entire thing. Um, the judge actually went on for at least half an hour, but I'm going to try to I'm going to try to condense it and the most important parts I will keep in there. Mr. Bundy, the court is going to sentence the person found guilty of the commission of the offenses at the Kyle House and Dunwoody Street. Your name, sir, was in the verdict form and your name, sir, was in the indictment. That's what the jury found. Based upon that is what the court is going to adjudicate. And I say to you as sincerely as I can that appellate review is anticipated provided for by law, and it should be pursued and pursued with the vigor that has been before this court in the trial. It is therefore the sentence of this court, count two of the indictment, you, Theodore Robert Bundy, be adjudicated guilty of murder in the first degree, and that you be sentenced to death for the murder of Margaret Bowman. As to count three of the indictment, you, Theodore Robert Bundy, be adjudicated guilty of murder in the first degree and that you be sentenced to death for the murder of Lisa Levy. It is further ordered that you, Theodore Robert Bundy, be taken by proper authority to the Florida State Prison and there be kept and closely confined until the date of your execution is set 
It is further ordered that on such scheduled date that you be put to death by a current of electricity sufficient to cause your immediate death, and such current of electricity shall continue to pass through your body until you are dead. The death sentence is imposed in both counts two and three for the deaths of Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy, independently and separately. And I'll get them to see you this afternoon. Thank you. Take care of yourself, young man. Thank you. I, I say that to you sincerely. Take right. care of yourself. It's a tragedy for this court to see it's such a total waste, I think, of humanity that I've experienced in this court. You're a bright young man. You made a good lawyer. I'd love to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. Take care of yourself. I don't have any animosity to you. I want you to know that. Same Take care of yourself. Thank you. Court of the Remain seated, please, If you go back and watch this clip on YouTube and you watch the judge's face, after Ted is finished talking and giving his statement, I felt like the judge was almost sympathetic to him and... I think that if he had more time, that his Ted's speech may have convinced the judge to go against the jury's recommendation for the death penalty. That's just my opinion, mostly because of, like I said, the expression on his face while Ted was talking and the expression on his face when he started talking to Ted, and then also his closing statements about being a good lawyer, and he would have loved to have him practice in front of him but so moving on to the next trial and no that's not a mistake Ted actually went through another trial and this time for the murder of his final victim Kimberly Leach thanks to an eyewitness who testified seeing Ted lead Kim from the schoolyard to his car as well as evidence of clothing fibers from Bundy's jacket found on Kim's body um, he was found guilty and sentenced to death a third time in February 1980. During this trial, he called Carol Ann Boone, who was a woman he'd met while working at the Washington State Department of Emergency Services years before, uh, to the witness stand. Bizarrely, he asked her to marry him, to which she said, I do hereby marry you, and which made the marriage, interestingly enough, legal. So Ted was on death row for just shy of 10 years. Over those years, Ted wouldn't confess to anything. He appealed his convictions for the Chi Omega murders in October 1982. Four months later, in January 1983, Ted also appealed his conviction in the Kimberly Leach trial. Both appeals were eventually denied. While Bundy was serving time on death row in 1984, Guards at the Florida State Prison thwarted an apparent escape attempt after discovering a hacksaw blades and a loose bar to his cell that had been sawed off and carefully replaced. In an effort to avoid a repeat performance from Ted, the guards at the Florida State Prison moved him to another wing. Um, Bundy wasn't going to get out of get out of it this time. So about his first few weeks in jail, Ted said, I thought I was going to die every night for the first few days I was in jail back in October of 1975. I was scared to death daily. I thought they were going to kill me. 
That first four or five months, I cried at night. I was a wreck, he recalled. A couple of guys kept chanting, we don't like rapos, gave me the bad eye and called me a baby raper and all that shit. It has been rumored for decades that uh, Ted was gang raped by four prisoners on death row in 84. Um, For the first time, Ted hinted that a death row guard allowed a mob of inmates to attack him. Ted said about the warden, I've got this problem. I've got this redheaded bull back there who enjoys pushing me into shit. When it came to talking about his pending death in the electric chair, Ted said, it's an eye for an eye, but it's no deterrent. It does not and never will restore any measure of compensation to the victim's families or the state. And talking of his hatred of being viewed as insane, Ted added, I know I'm not crazy or insane, incompetent, anything else. I'm not an animal and I'm not crazy and I'm not a split personality. People refuse to believe that. That's their problem. They'll never truly understand what makes me tick. But Ted babbled on that one of the things that really turned him on was his foot and sock fetish. He said, I've always felt deprived of underwear. This is for real. I mean, I've got a sock fetish. I'm really sick when it comes to socks. Those are some of the things for people who really want to know what makes Ted Bundy tick. I'm very close to my feet. They're probably the most attractive feet you've ever seen. Socks are such a serious part of my life. Are you kidding? He went on to admit that he got hooked on Valium, booze, and weed and adored the kinky writings of the Marquis de Sade. Um, Marquis de Sade, if you don't know, he was a writer of extremely explicit topics in the 1700s, which at that time labeled him as mentally deranged. He was sent to an asylum after being found guilty of sodomy and poisoning, uh, where he died in 1814. Ted also constantly refers to himself as quote, the entity, and quote, the organism, despite insisting he did not suffer from schizophrenia. So in the days leading up to his execution, Bundy spoke to investigators about unsolved cases that they thought he could clear up. Though he did confess to a number of killings, his final number remains unknown. Ted gave his final interview to James Dobson just hours before his execution. James Dobson was a Christian psychologist. The exchange was disturbingly laid back, actually. Throughout the interview, Ted appears to be sincere. But is he telling the truth, or are we just witnessing his final con here? You'll have to decide for yourself. For me, I think it's a mixture. I think, I truly believe that he was afraid of death and he was looking for comfort. Um, Yet, he refused until the very end to give peace to the families of the women that he murdered. On his final day, January 24th, 1989, Ted refused to touch his last meal ever. He'd refused to even choose a death row meal and instead was given the standard plate of steak and eggs, hash browns, and toast. Ted, who once bragged that uh, he's the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you'll ever meet, spent the night before his death weeping and praying with a Methodist minister, Fred Lawrence. He called his mother before he sat down on the chair that would end his life, No family was there, as neither he nor his mother wanted her to go through the agony of watching it. With his arms and legs strapped to the chair, he looked at the 42 witnesses, including those who had prosecuted him, and when asked if he had anything to say, he hesitated before turning to his attorney, Jim Coleman, and the minister, 
Mr. Lawrence, and saying, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. Both men nodded, and a strap was pulled over his mouth and chin, and the heavy black veil of this metal skull cap covered his face before an executioner pressed the button. Then, as 2,000 volts surged through his body, his hands clenched, his body went rigid, and a puff of smoke rose from his right leg. After a minute, it was all over. The lady killer was pronounced dead at 7.16 a.m. News that brought relief to many. Um, hundreds gathered outside the prison singing, dancing, and setting off fireworks while chanting, Burn, Bundy, burn! When his body came out in a hearse, it was met with cheers. Bundy's brain was removed and a series of experiments carried out to determine uh, why he had done his horrific crimes. Uh, they say certain brain injuries have been linked to criminality. Um, I think we talked about that in the Chris Benoit case. Um, there's no there's no evidence that he ever had a concussion or head injury or anything like that, but they wanted to study his brain. Back then, there was absolutely no like research into this kind of thing. They were just starting to look into it. But another reason they wanted to research it, because Bundy had told the detective who was instrumental in bringing him to justice that when he felt the urge to rape and kill, it was like a chemical tidal wave washing through his brain. He compared it to being addicted to drugs. Though when scientists examined Ted's brain, it was found to be totally normal. No lesions, injuries, or deformities whatsoever. So his body was then cremated, and Bundy's final wish was to have his ashes scattered on the same Taylor Mountain where he had dumped several of his victims' bodies. Now, according to his half-brother Rich, his final wish was not granted by his mother, though Rich doesn't know what she actually did with his ashes. I've said a couple of times throughout the episode that Brian Koberger, um, the Idaho 4 uh, suspect, reminds me of Bundy. One last thing that I'd like to point out, because it's never mentioned anymore, after Ted was found guilty, served his time on death row, and was executed. There's absolutely no talk about what it was like before the trial started. There are many, many archived news reports out there that anyone can go and watch, and is very similar to what's going on with the Idaho case right now. Many media outlets were reporting on police possibly planting evidence, framing Ted, are we prosecuting an innocent man here? All of these things that we're hearing about Brian Kohlberger now, we were also hearing about Ted Bundy back then. Bottom line is that the investigators were able to get enough probable cause to indict Brian Kohlberger, just like they had enough probable cause to indict Ted Bundy. Now it's up to the court system to determine if that probable cause proves he is guilty. It did in Ted's case, and he went on to confess years later. Did he confess to everything? No. I'll never believe that he did. I'm more than willing to believe his number is probably a triple-digit number. Now, for Koberger, I think this is his first murder. I really do. I also don't think he planned on killing anyone other than Maddie that night, but this is another case, and I spell out my own opinion quite well, I think, in Chapter 1, if you want to go back and listen to that. As for Ted, though, I think I'm going to leave it right here. The crimes of Ted Bundy still captivate and fascinate the true crime community to this day. Um, this was a long, long episode, so if you're here still, thanks so much for sticking it out with me. I hope all of the victims rest in peace, whether they've been identified or not. 
Um, and thoughts and prayers go out to all of these people's families. And uh, I hope everybody enjoyed the episode and take good care. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Join our Facebook page for pictures and updates on cases we've covered and breaking news stories. If you have case suggestions or requests, send us an email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com or on Facebook Messenger. You can follow us on TikTok and Instagram for related content, and I will see you next time. Bye.